Welcome to the podcast, On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. As always, you can find us on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. Please send your comments or questions to OnBecoming at gmail.com. Additionally, if you've been enjoying the podcast so far and want to help us grow, please consider recommending us to friends or reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or donating to our Patreon, which includes access to exclusive members-only content. As I mentioned in the previous episode, there are exciting upcoming interviews in the new year, one of which is with John D. Caputo. In fact, that interview was recorded last week. In case there's any doubt, you probably have figured out that in this podcast, I'm concentrating on the things that often get overlooked. Let me put it this way. When I was teaching young evangelical students, I came to realize that many of them, to be honest, probably most of them thought that everything in Christianity had kind of descended from the sky as if it were already assembled. But there isn't any human custom that arrives this way. We've always been putting human customs together. I'm not suggesting that Christmas is like something from Ikea. There are a bunch of pieces, and your job is to put them together without any pieces left over, though probably some of you have received or will receive Christmas gifts that are from Ikea. I'm suggesting instead that everything about Christmas has been improvised along the way. People in different lands came up with different customs, some of which survive today and have become mainstream. But those customs evolve over time. One of the things we'll note is that supposedly new traditions often have earlier precedents that are then built into the new customs. You shouldn't hear that as in any way a kind of criticism. If anything, the success of Christmas has been remarkable, which means that looking back at how it came into being is fascinating. Let's start with the time of the year. We have just passed the winter solstice. At least in Scotland, we are living in a dark time. Not dark in some bad kind of sense, but lack of sun. Today the sunrise was 8.43 a.m. and the sunset at 3.40 p.m. That's a very short day, less than seven hours of daylight. In the summers, of course, we have extremely long days, which means that most people go to bed long before the sun goes down. But for now, it's cold and dark. It's not hard to see that the festive season is there for a reason. Well, actually, lots of them. But one reason is simply this. When it's cold and it gets dark so early, you need some kind of festival to cheer you up. As far as I can see, that's probably the case in many parts of the world where the winter months are difficult. Historically, there have been rituals involving light and greenery in the winter months in most cultures that experience a seasonal change. Hanukkah is known as the Feast of Lights. Of course, I realize there are people who might be listening to me in Australia who are celebrating Christmas in their summer And so I realize that conditions may be very different where you live. Just as an example, I vividly remember celebrating Christmas as a kid living in L.A. 
we had moved there from Minneapolis, one of the coldest cities in the U.S., one of the cities where they have the most amount of snow. And then we celebrated Christmas in L.A. without any snow. It was surreal. But what is Christmas about? What's designed to do? I think we can say that all festivals are echoes of the festivals our ancestors held dancing around the fire. We've seen that religion is at base about holding something sacred in a way that binds us together. Christmas is one of the resulting rituals. It has influenced Western culture in many, many ways. Gathering at Christmas is a way of having something like an ideal community, even if it only lasts for a day or two or even a few hours. Particularly for families in which children are grown and live a long way away, the occupation of the same physical space is almost magical, pointing both back to Christmas's past and Christmas's to come. Gadamer writes this about festival. If there is one thing that pertains to all festive experiences, then it is surely the fact that they allow no separation between one person and another. A festival is an experience of community and represents community in its most perfect form. While it's unlikely that our ancestors who danced around a fire thought of themselves in terms of enacting a festival, that's what they were doing. We're not completely sure how often such ceremonies took place, but they must have happened very frequently, given how central they were to keeping the community united. Gautama makes the point that work usually divides us, since each of us are tasked with something different to do. And thus, what marks festival celebrations is that here we are not, and I'm quoting here, primarily separated, but rather are gathered together. A further aspect of the festival is that it's marked by a different sense of time. While festivals usually return over and over again, there's a sense that all of these instances are part of one festival, rather than being different and unrelated moments. By their nature, festivals return in such a way that the law between them is unimportant. During a festival, time is also suspended. Thus, a festival is a break from time divided in minutes and hours into a sense of time that gives itself over to the festival. In here, Gadamer says, a festive occasion is always uplifting, which raises the participants out of their everyday existence and elevates them into a kind of universal commun communion. Consequently, the festival occasion possesses its own sort of temporality. That temporality is what Gadamer terms enactment. The event is celebrated, and in being celebrated, it is once again experienced. Now, you probably know that the Romans celebrated Saturnalia, a feast day that started out as one day on December the, uh, the 17th, then grew to three days, and then seven days, ending then on December the 23rd. It's probably helpful to keep in mind that the Romans celebrated Saturnalia for about 500 years. Since you've been alive, has anything changed in your celebration of Christmas over the years? I suspect so. In any case, we simply don't know all the ways in which they celebrated the feast, though we have ample details. That holy day was dedicated to the Roman god Saturn, 
and occurred after the winter sowing was completed. Celebrating the god's birthday was considered a smart investment to make sure your harvest was plentiful. During the feast, slaves and masters would trade places, and slaves were sometimes allowed to wear the master's clothing. How far this role of Verso went, though, is unclear. But it was the one time of the year when slaves were allowed to say pretty well what they wanted, to talk about their difficult conditions and how hard it was for them. It's interesting that historians compare the holiday to Mardi Gras, which, of course, you know, is literally Fat Tuesday, though in New Orleans it lasts a lot longer than just a day. Part of the celebration involved the giving of gifts, which were usually candles or other things made from wax. Such gifts were usually small, which meant that everyone, including poor people, could take part in the gift exchange. All of these candles and other things were made specifically for the festival. The term Saturnalia can be defined as wild revelry or lack of restraint, though its secondary meaning is extravagance or excess. For some, it simply meant an orgy. For everyone, it meant a lot of eating and drinking and partying and playing games. Families would often appoint a member of the family, someone like the black sheep of the family, or maybe someone else who would be a kind of unlikely ruler, to serve as the king of the festivities. That person was called the Lord of Misrule. I'm assuming everyone knows that the Romans treated the early Christians in vastly differing ways depending on the time period. There were times when being a Christian might have gotten you into trouble or thrown to the lions. There is, though, recognition in recent scholarship that the early Christian tales of martyrdom need to be taken with mm, a grain of salt. Some appear to be false, and other stories clearly have been embellished. But no, it was just the opposite. Those early followers of Jesus thought that no one's birth, even Jesus, should be celebrated. That was the wisdom that held for about 200 years, and the wisdom was basically... That's what the pagans do. We as Christians don't do that. Now, exactly why and how the ancients, Christians, Romans, chose December 25th for Christmas is unclear. But it's probably along the lines of, let's just substitute another holiday for the old one. That's the easiest way to do it, of course. We do know that the first reference to Jesus being born on December 25th dates to two. 21, and comes from Sextus Julius Africanus. It has long been thought that the reason for choosing this day is that it was known as the day of the birth of the unconquered son. We don't really know the thinking behind this process, though substituting Jesus for Saturn, in other words, the sun for the sun, would have been a masterstroke of marketing. Christian writers made much of this substitution, the day had been about the rebirth of the sun, and instead it becomes the birth of the son of God. Some commentators have wondered why the Christians would have chosen such a day, because it was really the most prominent pagan holiday. But again, that's the genius of the switch, switch one god for another. Effectively, that means the calendar doesn't much change. There was going to be a celebration one way or the other. For the first two centuries of the Christian church, the opponents against celebrating the birthdays of any of the martyrs or even Jesus' birth prevailed. The idea of Christmas, 
which literally means Mass for Christ, doesn't actually get going until the ninth century. That's because, well, there have always been disagreements around Christmas, whether it should be celebrated, and if so, how. Such disagreements have been in place with changing particulars within Christianity, at least since the Reformation. We assume that Christmas has always been there. It's always been like this, but it's simply not the case. To use a different example, Epiphany, the 6th of January, was originally celebrated as Jesus' baptism. But over time, there was a shift from baptism to the visit of the Magi, which is how the date is now celebrated. Even when Christmas began to be celebrated, both Good Friday and Easter were considered to be much more important as religious holidays. The actual term Christmas only goes back to 1038. There are various customs connected with Christmas, though all of these are later additions. Back in 1494, there is the first reference that we have of the custom of bringing fir branches into the house. We know that trees were decorated with apples in Strasbourg in 1605. By 1611, there are references to candles on such branches. The custom of putting up a Christmas tree arrives in the American colonies by way of Americans reading about what folks in other countries did at Christmas. Tradition says that it was a Munich housewife who created the Advent calendar, and then, of course, they became available in print in 1851. It's only at the beginning of the 19th century that the idea of giving gifts to family members became attached to Christmas. Obviously, the wise men from the East brought gifts, but it's interesting that it took over 1,800 years for that to become a Christmas custom. Giving gifts to friends or people outside of the family, in contrast, goes back to the 15th century. Sending cards to people was a practice that originated in England in the 19th century. So you can see it's taken a lot of time to pull all of this together. Christmas didn't fall from the sky at all. It's been improvised in light of the situation all the time. Gifts. We keep coming back to those. Christians have long celebrated the gift of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. I mentioned that the Romans gave one another small gifts during Saturnalia. But as you know, getting stuff on Christmas is now so much a part of our culture that it would be very easy to focus on that. Let's face it, that's exactly what children do. But the whole gift-giving aspect needs some additional focus. One thing has become clear. The giving of gifts, usually on Christmas Day, but for some on Christmas Eve, has nearly eclipsed Jesus. When I was growing up, I remember hearing the frame, let's put Christ back in Christmas. I was just a kid, so I didn't realize that Jesus had gone missing. But holidays, religious or otherwise, accumulate many different associations along the way. And what I have in mind as I say that is this image of a Christmas snowball rolling down the hill of history, gathering up various pits, bits and pieces along the way, uh, customs from various countries, little aspects that are brought together with others. Now, you can see why the Puritans, and I should add, both in the United Kingdom and the U.S., were opposed to celebrating Christmas. One argument was, if God had intended us to know Jesus' birthday, he would have made that clear. An interesting argument. 
Another was that it was a pagan holiday that had been Christianized, but the Puritans still saw it as pagan. Admittedly, celebrating with holly and mistletoe, having a Yule log, lighting candles, putting up a tree, yeah, turns out they're all pagan customs. But time actually does change things. I think it's safe to say that the holly and the Yule log are as much a part of Christmas as they were ever about being something pagan. But there was another reason why the Puritans didn't want Christmas celebrated. At that time, the way in which Christmas was celebrated was by eating and drinking that led to, let's just say, rowdy behavior, including uh, begging with a kind of implicit threat of harm. Uh, we, we have that in the United States in the, the whole trick-or-treat tradition. It's something along that line. Um, the rowdy behavior also included mocking the authorities and, interestingly enough, invading the homes of the wealthy. In many countries, Christmas occurs just as the harvesting and slaughtering of animals for the winter has taken place. That means that there were many agricultural workers who suddenly had a lot of time on their hands. Further, although we usually only celebrate Christmas in Scotland, Boxing Day is also celebrated, the Council of Tours had already laid out the 12 feast days of Christmas. I think it was back in uh, 567. Think about it. The Roman Saturnalia was three days and eventually became an entire week, but the Christians had the pagans beat. They got 12 days of parting instead of a mere seven. Of course, the Christmas season often begins when stores start selling their Christmas wares, most of which now appears long before Christmas Day. If you're one of the few people wanting to celebrate Advent in a serious way, the difficulty is that technically it doesn't end until Christmas Day, and there is so much Christmas competition that Advent can just end up being a blur. Now, you might think that the Puritans were just worried that someone might be having fun. That's, of course, how the famous H.L. Mencken described them. They were actually worried, though, that gift-giving would become too important and overshadow Jesus. Score one for the Puritans. They were right. In fact, it is now the case that many churches in North America don't actually have a service on Christmas, and the reason is people are home opening gifts. This is a point on which evangelicals in the mainline uh, denominations differ. For instance, while Episcopalians make the Christmas Eve the focal point, and uh, the service is often held late in the evening, though there's a kind of concession to the fact that people had little children, so their service is held earlier. But they still have a service on Sunday. Evangelicals, this is probably more true with the megachurches, which are more sensitive regarding, you know, the actual reality of people, um, have largely canceled their services because kids get their presents on Christmas morning. If you think about it, there's really no satisfactory way around this, unless the tradition were to move to exchanging gifts on Christmas Eve, which is entirely possible. There's no reason why it couldn't be switched. Still, if you think about it, the excitement of going to bed and waking up to a house full of toys is going to beat going to the church service every single time. We normally think that liturgical traditions came about for specifically religious reasons, but history is never as pure as that. In this case, the toys won, and the Christmas Day service lost. 
which means that Christmas has become, yet again, something different. Of course, the commercialization of Christmas couldn't have come about without a lot of help. It only took about a decade for this ideal of Christmas to take hold across the United States. What's interesting is that scholars note that this idea took hold of the popular imagination so strongly that soon everyone assumed it had always been like this. This is a perfect example of the kind of things that get established and then take on a life of their own. Historians speak of invented traditions, new customs that are actually designed to appear as if they had been there all along. An invented tradition is one that conceals its origin and makes itself appear eternal. No discussion of Christmas would be complete without considering the role Santa Claus plays. There was a bishop named St. Nicholas who lived in what is today Turkey. He was born in 230 AD or CE. He has been the source of many different legends. One of those is that he was wealthy and gave away everything he owned. Another is that he helped the sick and the needy. A particularly remarkable story is that he provided the dowry for three women to allow them to be married and thus escape the fate of becoming a slave. Nicholas is the patron saint for sailors and children, and his feast day, the anniversary of his death, is December 6th, though his feast has usually been celebrated on the eve of December 5th in the Netherlands, and is celebrated in Belgium, where I lived for a number of years, Luxembourg, western parts of Germany, northern France, and Hungary on the 6th of December. St. Nicholas was often referred to as the Goede Saint, the Good Saint. <laughs> that leaves me wondering about the others. So he's the Good Saint, like all the others weren't so good. To say that he was the most popular saint would be... Uh, truly an understatement, not just today, but for many centuries, despite the fact that the Protestant Reformation was, among other things, not very much in favor of sainthood, St. Nicholas was an exception. That was particularly the case for people from the Netherlands, and they ended up exporting their custom of honoring St. Nick on December 6th. Some of those people moved to North America and brought their tradition with them. In Dutch, his name was Sint Nicholas, but then it was shortened to Sinterklaas. Sinterklaas. But here we encounter controversy. <laughs> You're probably thinking, how can you get into controversy over Santa Claus? According to the Dutch version of the story, Sinterklaas visits with his friends known as the Zwarte Piet. That translates as Black Piet. You can probably see the problem. Traditionally, to achieve that effect required white people putting on blackface. Then there's the problem of the white guy who has two black servants or helpers or whatever you want to call them. Since about 2010, there's been decreasing attention given to St. Nick in the Netherlands precisely because of this problem. Last year, there appeared a new version of those helpers now called the Rutvechpiet, <laughs> which translates as to... Uh, translates as sooty peat, and they appeared with soot marks on their faces. Actually, I've been following this controversy ever since I first lived in Belgium, which has a similar tradition. 
I suspect that someone will eventually come up with a workaround for this. The sooty peat is a good early attempt, but it's a tradition that probably needs to be updated or else abandoned. I just don't see how it can go forward in its present form. But of course, it doesn't actually need to, since the rest of the world is so into Santa that other Santa traditions can carry on in place. If we go back to North America, we discover that the first prints of Santa Claus, who were made by a member of the New York Historical Society and then distributed to that society at their annual meeting in 1804. It depicted Santa Claus in what has become his usual costume, all red with a long white beard, and two children, one naughty and one nice. Now, the guy who put this print together is named John Pintar. And he was a Santa Claus enthusiast. Now, interestingly enough, he was an important supporter of General Theological Seminary in New York City. And this is where Clement Clark Moore taught. Clement Clark Moore uh, wrote the poem that usually is known as Twas the Night Before Christmas. That, that continues, Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. But the actual name of the poem is called A Visit from St. Nicholas. I think few people know that. Anyway, it's interesting because I was a visiting scholar at the General Theological Seminary for a couple of years, and it turns out that a former Greek and Hebrew professor, Clement Clark Moore, had written this poem. It's a very interesting thing. The land on which the seminary stands was given by Moore to the seminary. If you're ever in New York City and want to experience something like an oasis, visit the campus of General in New York City. They own an entire city block, and when you're in the garden, you're in a quiet place that makes you think you couldn't possibly be in New York City. When Moore owned the property, it extended from 19th Street to 24th Street and 18th, or sorry, 8th Avenue to 10th Avenue. If you've ever been to New York City, you'll know just how big that was. Moore published the piece in a book simply called Poems, and he referred to its creation as, quote, his long-ago trifle. Now, that's exactly how one, I think, would expect a scholar to label such a thing. It wasn't published by a peer-reviewed academic journal. In terms of his scholarship, his two-volume Compendious Lexicon of the Hebrew Language is probably his most substantial work. You can imagine that for someone used to parsing Hebrew verbs, writing a children's poem about a mythical creature would not seem very much like scholarship. But it does turn out to be the main reason why Moore is remembered today. Before that poem existed, there were many different conceptions of Santa. For instance, in ages past, Santa wore a green costume, not a red one. But we would be remiss if we didn't mention that a father figure was also associated with the Saturnalia. That figure was there to cheer people during the cold, dark months of the year and to remind people that spring would be coming. So there was also that inspiration. In effect, the poem in the woodprints has established what Santa looks like. The names of the reindeer, and the idea of how he would descend chimneys to deliver toys to children all over the world. Pinterter was a Protestant who thought that the Protestants had removed too many of the religious festivals that, at least as he saw it, gave the common folk an opportunity to release pent-up energy 
and just have some time off. You should keep in mind that at this point in history, the weekend hadn't been invented. You should also keep in mind that the conditions of life were such that it was the end of the harvest, that food was both fresh and plentiful. In other words, it was the perfect time to have a party. Animals that were judged unfit to live through the winter were slaughtered at that time, which meant that for most people, this time of the year was when there was fresh meat available. Moreover, it was also the time of the year when beer and wine would be available to buy. Putting all this together, we can see that they would have had all the ingredients available only at this time of year. Conversely, we live in a world in which food is, if anything, too available. We forget how unusual our own time is from that of our ancestors. Let me underscore something that I hope is already clear. The prime promoters of Santa Claus have always been Christians. In other words, the invention of Santa Claus wasn't done with the purpose of denigrating Jesus or trying to pro provide competition. When Pinterest was first proposing the idea of St. Nicholas Day, uh, he thought that it would be a good idea to extend the Dutch custom um, in New York City. The main party at that point would have been on New Year's Eve. Pinter thought that celebrating St. Nicholas Day on the 5th of December would provide a family-oriented winter holiday for polite society. It's not hard to see that a late-night party isn't going to be very good for children, but a daylight celebration with gifts, why, that's perfect. Now, a friend of his, Washington Irving, had just published a book in which he claimed St. Nicholas as the patron saint of New York City. Here's how Irving described him, a jolly old Dutchman named Sankt Klaus, who parked his wagon on rooftops and slid down chimneys with gifts for sleeping children on his feast day. Pintard let the toast at the New York Historical Society be saying, the first toast to Sankt Klaus, Goed Geligman. Uh, that translates as Santa Claus, good, holy man. Further, even from the little we've seen, it's clear that Santa Claus arose as a figure that from early on, not quite as the same time as Jesus, but around the same time as his birth began to celebra be celebrated. In that sense, of course, they're contemporaries. But otherwise, Santa Claus and Jesus have been intertwined for centuries, and that interweaving was done by the Christian community itself. Santa Claus is a deeply Christian figure, modeled on the life of Nicholas. As it turns out, he wore red robes and gave gifts to the poor. It is said that he was so shy that he would give families money by dropping it down the chimney to land in a stocking. Of course, the creation of Santa was an echo of legends about Father Christmas that were part of Saturnalia. During the festival, people would chant Yo, Saturnalia, or else they would say, yo, yo, yo. Some scholars think this may actually be where ho, ho, ho comes from, which is probably as good an explanation as any, since ho, ho, ho is something that only Saturn, I mean, sorry, I mean Santa says. But there's another aspect that needs attention. Although Pintard's suggestion regarding St. Nicholas Day didn't take off like he hoped, 
There were other New Yorkers who thought that celebrating Christmas would be a good idea. You might be wondering, so they weren't already celebrating Christmas? The answer is no. And the reason for that is simple. In the wake of the Reformation, Protestants had removed most Christian holidays as too Catholic. As one scholar put it, since the Reformation, Protestants had dismissed Christmas as another artifact of Catholic ignorance and deception. I will pass over this kind of slander, but it's just it's un, it's unfortunate people have to say things like that. In effect, various Christian factions had been at odds with one another over whether they should be celebrated since the Reformation. In other words, about 400 years. But in early 19th century New York, there was a sense that everyone needed a holiday, and Christmas became that. In New England, it was illegal to celebrate Christmas from 1659 to 1681. If you were caught observing Jesus' birth, you would owe a fine of five shillings. However, by the 19th century, the churches in New England had become so worried about people being too rowdy on December the 25th that they thought mm, having a Christmas service might be a good idea. Now, I should mention that the idea of misrule central to Saturnalia found its way into the celebration of Christmas, and it came in various forms. As in the days of the Saturnalia, the days of Christmas often had a carnival atmosphere in which people did pretty much the same things they did during Saturnalia, eating and drinking to excess. Reverend Increase Mother of Boston wrote the following observation in 1687. Generality of Christmas keepers observe that festival after such a manner as is highly dishonorable to the name of Christ. How few are there that spend those holidays, as they are called, after a holy manner, but they are consumed in compotations, which I think means alcohol, in interludes, which I think means something to do with sex, in playing at cards and revelings and excess in wine and mad mirth. In 19th century England, a pastor from Newcastle declared that the Christmas season was just an excuse for drunkenness and rioting and wantonness. One of the common practices around Christmas was mumming. Uh, it was a practice in which men and women cross-dressed. Another was the singing of Christmas carols, which the same pastor in Newcastle thought was scandalous. Um, though if you were to ask me why, I really don't know. But it does then point out that Christmas has also involved the changing of roles. Those who were young or from a lower social class were allowed to say what they wanted. In fact, most of the things found in Saturnalia make their way into the celebration of Christmas in some form or another. Again, things often evolve or they get improvised over time. Even today, on December 25th, the officers in the British Army still serve the enlisted folks. Boxing Day is the day after Christmas, and it's celebrated in the United Kingdom and other Commonwealth countries. It was the day on which gifts were given to tr servants and tradespeople. There are multiple explanations for the name, the money came from almost boxes, or the boxes of presents that uh, people received, but nobody really knows why it's called Boxing Day. In any case, this tradition of misrule extended far into the tradition of Christmas. 
when wealthy people were expected to be kind and provide food and gifts for the poor. That sometimes took the form of a poor person showing up at a rich person's house demanding some food or drink. Young men would enter the houses of the wealthy and demand to be treated as kings. But the official liturgical celebration of Christmas was very slow in coming. We have records from 1850 regarding the situation in Worcester, Massachusetts. Here's a quote. The courts were in session on that day, the markets were open, and I doubt if there had ever been a religious service on Christmas Day unless it were on Sunday in that town. But even later, one can find reports of factories that changed the starting hour on December 25th to 5 a.m. precisely to keep employees from celebrating the day. If you know how much about Christianity, you would know that the most important day is Easter, the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. But of course, Easter doesn't come with presents. An Easter egg hunt is fun, but it simply can't compare to the joy of getting a lot of toys. None of this was lost on retailers. If Christmas was to become a phenomenon, then they would definitely profit from the holiday. Black Day is the day after Thanksgiving in the United States, and it is technically, or at least it be, used to be technically, the start of the shopping season. But now the shopping season starts so much earlier. Incidentally, you might find it interesting that here in Scotland, there is now the tradition of Black Friday, but without Thanksgiving. Do you see what I mean by holidays being improvised as they go along? The British take a particular piece of Americana and use it without its other part. And I suspect you can also see that commerce cannot but be part of a holiday that involves gift-giving. By the 19th century, New York City had established itself, and there were stores offering just about everything that could be given as gifts. In the 1820s, advertisements for Christmas gifts started appearing in new newspapers and magazines. It's at this point that Christmas and selling merchandise came together. Already in 1823, a Boston magazine published a, an item which railed against the commercialization of Christmas. Remember, 1823. By 1834, another Boston publication opined that toys were being aggressively marketed to children, and the expectations that everyone get a gift continued to increase. Keep in mind that this is a holiday in which it's really the merchants and children against the parents. If you think about it, the parents don't really stand a chance. It all depends on the year, of course. Back in the mid-80s, there was the cabbage patch doll phenomenon. For about three years, that was the must-have toy. And there were many stores, stories of parents getting into fights, even riots, with other parents in order to get one of these toys. By the 1840s, advertisements for Christmas gifts often had their own section in the newspaper that was called holiday advertisements. In other words, even back then, the word Christmas wasn't necessarily used. In 1839, a depression hit the United States, the worst depression that the U.S. had suffered up until that point. Merchants were desperate for business. In 1840, there was a competition among the confectioners in Philadelphia. Bakers were making cakes that weighed 250 pounds, and customers could buy a slice. Uh, there was actually a, a baker that made a, a cake that weighed 1,000 pounds. 
But merchants also figured out that even those who were hard up would still want something for Christmas, perhaps even to deal with the harsh conditions. However, Americans at this point in time were generally against luxurious purchases, thinking that such spending was unseemly. Thus, Christmas became the one time of year when such purchases could be made without the accompanying stigma. It was the one time of year when parents found it very hard also to say no to presents. As it turns out, people buying gifts were just what the economy needed. From that time on, Christmas became the most important holiday for selling items to be used as gifts. One of the things that really took off were gift books, which were published at the end of the year specifically to be used as presents. It led to an entire genre, one that would culminate in the coffee table book. But there were books for children and adults at every price level. Some of the books had gilded edges and ornate bindings. Another feature of these gift books was that many had advertisements that were part of the book itself. These books were largely designed for children. But other gifts books were clearly designed as potential gifts to give one's spouse or lover or someone that's close. Many of these books contained presentation plates, a page designed for the name of the receiver. Publishers also noted that Bible sales went up at Christmas, which meant that many publishers came out with special editions of the Bible for Christmas. The publisher Harper and Brothers brought out the Illuminated Bible, a 1,500-page Bible filled with illustrations. In the first 12 years of its publication, the receipts came to half a million dollars, a huge sum back then. It was during the 1840s that Santa became a phenomenon. His figure was increasingly used by merchants in their advertising. In 1841, a retailer put up a life-size figure of Santa in the shop and attracted thousands of children. A few years later, a Cincinnati newspaper published an advertisement that read, Come at last, important arrival. The little people of this big city will doubtless be rejoiced to learn that the sterling old Dutchman Santa Claus has just arrived from the renowned region of the Manhattos with his usual annual budget of knickknacks for the Christmas times. The old gentleman has taken up his headquarters this year, Lauterbeck's on 4th Street. Santa became the symbol of a cozy, old-fashioned Christmas. Those people promoting Santa in New York had claimed that they were merely reclaiming the ancient Dutch tradition. Now, the reality was that they were taking certain elements from that tradition and then making, mixing them with others to create something different but analogous. One complication in all of this is the tension between market capitalism, which produces the item and makes it almost universally available, and the concept of giving a special gift. It's the same tension, if you think about it, as in the card industry, when you pick out some mass-produced card, but then add a few lines and sign your name, and suddenly it's transformed to the card just for someone special. But the whole Santa store put all of this in a different light. Although the stores were filled with toys, it was Santa and his elves that were reputed to make the toys, and then somehow Santa was able to get those toys distributed around the world down chimneys. With a story like that, the holiday is almost instantly less commercial. 
for the fiction is that the toys that the children receive from the North Pole made by happy elves who love children and toys. In other words, there's no money involved. Moreover, such a concept marks a break between what we could call Santa's economy and the real economy. In the real economy, you actually need money to buy presents. In Santa's economy, there isn't even a question about where it all comes from other than the elves. In other words, Santa is totally self-funded, and there seems to be unlimited supply of funds. Santa combines all of these roles. He's not merely the giver of gifts. He's the producer and distributor of them. In order for the actual gifts, of course, to reach the tree, parents needed to pay. But the Santa story completely left out the commercial part. In the Santa story, there's no need for a seller. There's no need for a purchaser. So in that sense, Santa's not part of the normal economy. However, you can imagine there's still this nagging question. Children see all those toys in the stores. What happens to all those toys? But of course, it takes children several years to get to the stage where they start asking that questions, and they often reach it reluctantly, or maybe someone blurts out the truth and they're unhappy. It's a happy story. And it's one that parents don't normally want to disturb because they're more than happy for children to enjoy this story as long as possible. But Santa Claus is also a friend of parents in an important way. Remember that line, he's making a list and checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice? Santa's not merely a toy maker and distributor. He's an accountant that keeps track of everything you do. If you joined us for some of the previous episodes, you know that postulating the existence of a god was a central feature of the dancing religions that seemed to be what our ancestors had. The problem is a very old one. Would you still be good if you could become invisible with the result that no one would ever know what you've done? In other words, you could do good or bad. We've already noted that psychological studies have shown that people make different decisions when they have a sense of being watched. What's interesting about the switch, though, is that to children it doesn't make much of a difference whether it's Santa or God. As long as there's someone keeping track, we're much more likely to be more careful. Santa, of course, was reputed to be a bringer of coal if you were on the naughty list. Now, I suspect that Santa has moved on from coal to a more contemporary commodity. But either way, you don't want Santa to be disappointed in you, do you? You want a man on your side. And that's where the parents have the advantage. Did you do your chores? Don't you know that Santa keeps very close track of these things? So you better be careful. Remember that original wood print that depicted Santa with a good child and a bad child? You couldn't make it any more obvious. It's interesting to me that 19th century New York parents decided to do multiple things with Santa Claus. While the notion of God watching your every move is daunting, Santa is watching children determine which and how many toys to bring to your house on Christmas Eve. With God, you never know what he might do. He might overlook something, or he might decide that you need to be punished for your deeds. With Santa, the logic is pretty simple. If you're good, you get presents. I want to close with an observation of what I think Christmas does. In a culture in which some people are devout, 
Christian believers. Others see themselves as having some vague link to Christianity, and others don't believe in anything like the original historical events that brought us Christmas. Christmas has to be flexible. Having lived in New York City, I can say that there are many people who are Jewish that eat Chinese food on December 25th, precisely because the Chinese restaurants are open on that day. In Japan, due to a clever marketing campaign, most Japanese eat KFC on Christmas, and they actually need to reserve about two months in advance. But it's a holiday that doesn't really require any particular belief to participate. Remember when we talked about our ancestors dancing around the fire as a way of achieving not just a sense of a community, but an actual community? I think we can assume that those people had their own communal beliefs, but it was the event of music with dancing that brought everyone together. However, we live in a time in which that intense sense of community is basically gone. We don't have that anymore. Precisely because of that, holidays like Christmas, and I think Christmas actually is the paradigm holiday in Western culture, serve the purpose of bringing people together. We had a small gathering on Friday night, mainly to celebrate the holiday, but also to hear my new piano, which had just arrived the day before and was tuned only a few hours before the party began. I'll have a little bit more to say about that at some point. But for now, the focus should be on how such events connect us to one another. I had the distinct sense that we were truly brought together in a special, even magical way. Eventually, people had to go home. But I had the distinct impression that were it possible, the guests would have preferred to just hang around. Perhaps you have that same feeling today, and maybe even for a few days. However, anything that has as much cultural force as Christmas is going to be difficult in some ways. If you and your family are together today, and you're able to celebrate the holiday with this sense of belonging, that's truly wonderful. One of the folks we had over texted us to say that the gathering was a highlight of 2022. Simply reading that gave me great joy. But there are many people for whom Christmas is difficult. One way of explaining that difficulty would be to say that many people either simply don't have a group of family members or else close friends with whom they can celebrate. They are alone. Another problem is that if you've just had a death in the family or experienced something of that magnitude, it may not be possible to have the sense of joy that one can and often does experience at Christmas. Another aspect concerns the cost of Christmas. It puts a heavy burden on parents who may not be up to it financially. If it were simply a matter of people not knowing what they're missing, it wouldn't be so difficult. But there's no way you wouldn't know that Christmas is at least designed to bring us together. All of the ways in which Christmas is depicted makes it clear that the intent of the holiday is to achieve this sense of togetherness. So if you know someone who, as the song goes, needs a little Christmas right this very minute, perhaps you can be the person who does whatever you can to help. Growing up evangelical, while I always loved the story of the Christmas carol, it seemed too disconnected from Jesus' birth. 
but I think it does really capture the spirit of Christmas. Christians consider Jesus to be the ultimate gift from God. A major point of Dickens' story is that Scrooge has zero concern for those less fortunate than himself. He's approached by two men who ask for a donation for the poor. Here's what they say. At this festive season of the year, Mrs. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at this present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessities. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comfort, sir. You probably know Scrooge's response by heart. Are there no prisons? To which they enter. Plenty of prisons. And the union workhouses, are they still in operation? The response is, both very busy, sir. Those who are badly off must go there. But then comes the now infamous passage. But then comes the now infamous passage. The men asking for a donation reply, many can't go there, and many would rather die. And Scrooge responds, if they'd rather die, then they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. What Scrooge learns from the three spirits that come to visit him is that there isn't anything like a surplus population. Instead, Scrooge has in effect cut himself off from his community. He doesn't see any connection between him and everyone else. But then he undergoes a transformation. And Dickens concludes by saying, it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that truly be said of us and of us all. You've been listening to the Christmas episode of Unbecoming. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Let me wish you a happy Christmas, as they say in the UK. And God bless us, everyone.